Welcome to Gracious Words. Gracious Words is taken from the weekly women's Bible study taught by Cheryl Broderson at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California. We behold your glory, God, in the face of Christ. It shows us who you are, revealing who you are. In today's program, we find Israel entering the promised land. This was a new generation that had lost all their ancestors in the wilderness. Now, more than ever, they needed to remember God and what He had done in order to retain their identity as His chosen people. Part two of Cheryl's message titled Stones of Remembrance. I want you to understand that you are taking with others from the same loaf so that you realize that one life for all believers is what sufficed the wrath of God. And then he took the wine and he says, as often as you drink this cup, I want you to remember my blood that was shed for you and the new covenant, the the agreement you have with God in my name. I want you to see this bread and this wine and know you are covered. You are covered. Your sins are forgiven. And so he gave us the visual reminder, the ritual, a physical reminder, something to do that we might remember. He gave us an auditory reminder that we were to repeat the story of the cross. We look at the bread in the cup and we hold it and we ingest it together. It was a musical reminder. We're told that they sang a hymn after this covenant was established. They sang a hymn. And so in song, we remember the work and the love of our Savior. We need these constant reminders again, lest we suffer spiritual loss, lack faith, or become limited in our spiritual progress. Remembering, memorializing, gives us a sense of identity and purpose. It reminds us of who we are and our history with God our experience with God, it strengthens our faith because we remember what God got us through that. He will get us through this. He's never failed. And it ensures our spiritual progress. It guarantees that we will go forward and we will make it. Think about what it must have been to be one of these Israelites that we read about in Joshua chapter four. Your ancestors had all died in the wilderness. So in a sense, part of your identity had been lost. You know, you kind of know who you are because of your mom, your dad, your uncles, your cousins. They remind you of who you are. You know, Brian's sisters will come over, especially one of his sisters. And Kelsey, my youngest daughter, will start saying something. And Brian's sister will be like, that's because you're a Broderson. 
All of us Brodersons did that. We Brodersons are known for that. That's just the Brodersons. And Kelsey's like, okay, yeah, I'm a Broderson. Now I know. And it, it gives her a sense of identity and security. Now think about this too. They're a nomadic people. So they don't have a family home. That's our family home. They don't have a family land or a land that you know used to be the family. And they could say, we used to own that or that's where you came from. 40 years of nomadic living through the wilderness. Life was full of busyness. At this point, they're still gathering manna every morning from Sunday to Friday. I've just been reading this book, um, Women in Bible Times. It's fascinating. And in it, it said that the bread preparation and probably with the manna would take a woman an average of three hours. And the bread was always fresh every day. So three hours a day was dedicated for the woman to just making the bread, grinding it, kneading it, baking it, just for the bread. But remember this too, the women also had to gather the water every day. I mean, we take plumbing for granted. And these women had to get those big old jars. You know, somebody was saying, how could those men lift those stones? Well, how could those women lift those 120 pound jars of water? to bring to their family. And that's if you had a small family. But those jars of water that they would fill and they would lift and carry to their tent. And then they would go back and get more water and fill it and lift it and feed the animals, water the animals. Think about it. Then because they're nomads and they have these tents and, and they brought out some of their items out of Egypt that have been in the family for years. There was the constant packing and unpacking of camp. If you think suitcases are difficult and going to a women's retreat is difficult because of the packing, think about what it is to pack up not only, you know, your items, your rugs, your, um, make up your clothes, but also your home itself, the tent, the, the tent pegs that you need to remember, the badger skins, the goat skins, and all of these things that you have to pack up, move, and then set up all over again and lay down your rugs, your couches, your beds. And then there's all the incidentals. Besides the packing and unpacking, there are the pots, the pans, the toiletries. Interestingly enough, years ago in the British Museum, they had a display of all the items that they had found in the Sinai Desert when they decided to track, these archaeologists decided to replicate the track that they felt like the Israelites must have traveled through the Sinai. And there they found this place that looked like a, a camp had been set up and they could tell by the way there was these stairs and the stairs matched how the stairs would have been for the tabernacle foundation. And when they were excavating in this area, they found a metal box that dated back to the Exodus. It was a woman's box. And as they opened it up, they found these hair combs they found tweezers, which, you know, no unibrows among the Israelite women. 
and they found jewelry in this box and they found a bronze mirror, which is so interesting because we're told in Exodus that these serving women gave up their bronze mirrors that the Bezalel and those building the tabernacle could make a bronze laver for the priests to wash their hands in. And it was found there. So, I mean, you had your little toiletry box that you wanted to remember. And I think that poor husband who forgot his wife's toiletry box, because, you know, there's no place to purchase something like that again. And, you know, I brought those cones out of Egypt. I know you lost it. It's not here. It's somewhere among the tent and the things that we've got. Oh, no, it's not. You know, I, I'm just saying. Just saying. And, and besides this, there's children running all around, right? There's children that you're trying to keep track of. And I don't know about you, but I have a theory that every family has one elusive child, one escapist, one Houdini per family. And my Houdini was my son, Char. He used to love to escape every time I was at the market because he loved to hear his name on the loudspeaker. Will the mother of Charlo Broderson please come to the front? I could not go to the market without him escaping, wriggling his hand out. I turned to get a can of green beans and he was gone. And pretty soon, within three minutes, will the mother of Charlo Broderson please come to, you know, check stand number five. Everyone's got one. My little Houdini. But you know what? I'm okay. Because Jesus did that to Joseph and Mary. I mean, think about it. With the packing and unpacking of visiting Jerusalem at the Passover, we're told in Luke 1 that they forgot Jesus. That they left Jesus at the temple. And it wasn't until they were three days out of Jerusalem that Mary's like, Joseph, where's Jesus? And Joseph's like, "Uh, Mary, last time I saw him, he was with you. No, 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 no. He was definitely with you. No, he was with you. And they had to return to find Jesus. And I love it when Mary says, you know, where have you been? Your father and I have been searching for you. And it's almost as if Jesus says, "Uh, excuse me, who lost who? I haven't moved. I'm still exactly where I'm supposed to be. Who left Jerusalem without me? Just saying distractions. Mary and Joseph had those same distractions. And then there's the distraction of crossing rivers, seeing enemy fortresses, and new land that they had never seen before. And in this environment of hardship, busyness, distraction, it would be very easy to forget the great things God had done because you could be so focused on what you need to do next, the next step the next thing that needed to be done. And you could forget how powerful your God was and how he was going before you. Here in Joshua 4, we read that God had already commanded Joshua to have each of the tribes select a man. That was chapter 3. Now these men who have been selected from each tribe are to approach near the Ark of the Covenant and collect one stone. And they're to collect it from where the priests stood on dry ground, from the very midst of the Jordan River bed. And each stone will represent a tribe of Israel. 
Now the men were to take these stones and they were to carry them to the camp of Gilgal. Now remember, these men were strong. They had been reared and raised in the wilderness. They didn't have office jobs. Their jobs had to do, as we said before, with with heaving poles and tents and carrying and moving and setting up. They were like construction workers. They were strong. And they took these large stones and maybe there was even a competition. Hey, how much that thing weigh? Oh, I got a, I got a, I got a big one here. Really? Oh, mine's pretty big. This is for the tribe of Manasseh. Really? We'll just see. I'm going to go get one for Gad. You know, really that's Gad's. Have you seen Judah's? You know, these are men. Men are competitive. It's their nature. And there they're going like, hey, how big's your stone, huh? Yeah. None of them were like, it's my stone. This is my tribe. No, they were like, how much you bench pressing? You know, what are you doing? That's what it was. Now, after this was done, Joshua himself took 12 stones from outside the Jordan and put them inside the Jordan. Now, I don't know how he compiled them. I don't know whether he made a tower or whether he made stepping stones so that others could continue to cross over into Israel. I don't know. It would be interesting to find out. And we're not told the configuration but we're told that there were 12 stones. So Joshua took what was from without and put it within. And these men took from what was within the Jordan and took them without. And they took them so far away, eight miles to the camp that they set up at Gilgal. Now, I want you to remember in Numbers, it tells us that Moses assigned each of the tribes of Israel a place where they were to camp so that the camp of Israel looked like a cross with the tabernacle in the middle. That was how the camping arrangement was, was like a cross. Now, no doubt, however those stones were erected, they were erected where everyone could see them, where they were visual. Now, I think it was in such a classic arrangement, something that would elicit curiosity. So everybody say like, what is with that? You know, maybe they were piled, but maybe they said like J for Judah. Maybe they were in a certain shape. Maybe they were in the shape of a cross. Maybe it was a foreshadowing of what God would do. We're not told the shape, but we're told that it was something some type of shape that would elicit curiosity from children. Don't you love that? It would elicit curiosity from children. When I used to teach Sunday school, I would always come with a box and inside the box, there were goodies, but I just hold it on my lap. And the kids would say, you know, teacher, because that's what they call you because they can't remember your name. You know, teacher, what's in the box? What box? The box on your lap. I have a box on my lap. Teacher. Oh, this box. Well, in this box 
I have special gifts from those who listen to the Bible study, cooperate and sing silly songs with Cheryl, and do their craft, and just are all around with a great attitude. But I did that to elicit curiosity. I would sometimes bring a visual in for the kids just to ask about, like, you know, what is that? So the shape elicits the curiosity of children. Don't we have a wonderful God that knows the imagination of children? He's not put off by it, but he brings it out to its fullness. So each of these stones would represent a certain tribe. All the stones were taken out, placed in the Jordan, and all the people had crossed over. I love it how it says, the priest stood still and the people hurried across. Isn't that, I, I don't know why, but I just like it. And including the 40,000 men who were armed from half the tribe of Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben. The priests were ordered to step out of the Jordan, carrying the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders, verses 10 through 16. And as soon as the priests bearing the Ark stepped onto the bank of the Jordan River, the waters came cascading down from Adam, and the river was filled again to its original fullness over a mile wide. And this all happened on the 10th day of the first month. And they set up these stones right in viewing distance of the fortress of Jericho. Don't you know that it was almost as if those stones, you couldn't see Jericho, but through the stones of remembrance. I believe that's how God wants us to see all the fortresses of the enemy, all the power of the enemy, see it through the stones of remembrance. See it through what God has already done for us. You know, if you just look at the enemy's activity, and there's a lot right now, isn't there going on? A lot of enemy activity, you will get so discouraged. But if you look at the enemy activity through the word of God, you know that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And all of a sudden it fits, everything fits into God's great prophetic plan. And we're all going to victory. We're all on the way to the promised land. And I believe that they set those stones up so that you could not see the fortress of Jericho without the stones being greater and larger in your viewpoint than Jericho. Now, God had something special planned to commemorate his work. Joshua set up the stones in the midst of the camp. And Joshua announced to the people that this was to be a forever memorial, that they were to bring their children here. They were to point it out to their children and to their children's children. And they were to answer the questions of the children and tell the story again and again of the crossing of the Jordan. In verses 21 through 24 of chapter 4, Joshua said, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. As the Lord your God did it to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over. 
that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. In order to remember the greatness and the might of God, they were to have this visual reminder. They were to tell the story again and again and discuss the story. You see, it's not enough to simply have a visual reminder. I mean, sometimes we forget what that visual reminder is to remind us of. That's where we're at. I know that meant something at some point in my life. You know, have you ever had something that you kept and you're like, why did I keep this? You know, does it belong to a bottle? Why did I keep this? What was I thinking when I kept this? I don't know if you do that. I do that. The only way to remember is to continue to tell the story. And the more we tell the story, the more we remember the story. But when we stop telling the story, we forget the deeds and we forget what the story meant to us. One of the saddest losses for me was after my dad's stroke, when he couldn't remember certain stories he had told me. And I remember sitting at the table eating dinner with him. We used to have dinner with him every single Friday night. And I said, Dad, remember when your father had had his nervous breakdown and how he'd gone into that catatonic state when my dad was 15? It was a story my dad had told me over and over again. And my dad looked at me and he said, no, no. And I said, you don't remember? Prince Thunden, you don't remember that he drove a white Cadillac? You don't remember that he came to your house in Santa Ana that he found you and searched you out? My dad said, no. I said, then I'll tell you the story. It's a good one. But there were so many things. You know, maybe you didn't catch on to it, but I did. That he couldn't, he could no longer do. Remember how he used to do that great thing with the probability? Now cover the state of Texas two feet deep with, you know, silver dollars. Take a man, blindfold him, spin him around, fly him over the state of Texas, then push him out in a parachute. And the odds that he would find that one silver dollar marked is the odds that Jesus could complete eight prophecies and not be the son of God. Oh, well, let's do something bigger. You know, they say that an atom is the smallest component, but electrons are even more. And you could line up one trillion atoms in an inch. But let's spread all those electrons all the way to the sun. And he would go into this incredible statistics about the probability. And after his stroke, he would start to go there, but he couldn't remember He couldn't call those figures that he had known. He couldn't recite the cremation of Sam McGee anymore. And I realized, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. But I was so glad that he told me this story. I was so glad that my youngest son had memorized the cremation of Sam McGee so we can still hear it on dark, cold, windy nights with hot chocolate. We need to keep telling this story. You know, we think we'll always be able to hear this story, but we won't. We need to keep telling this story.
discuss the story because discussing the story brings out the details. Have the children ask questions and then you get names and you get details. And isn't it amazing the details the children remember? You left out. You know, my my grandson Judah will say, Grandma, tell me this story about when my dad was a little boy and he broke the window. And it's how, which window, honey? There were five, which one? And if I forget a detail, Judah's like, Grandma, Grandma, you forgot the part where, you know, and I'm like, you're right. And they'll want to know what what face did he make? What was he wearing? <laughs> like, oh, good question. But they ask these questions that make you have to remember, make you have to think, make you have to relive it and play it again in your mind and see it. And you know, These stories have become my grandchildren's heritage. God instructed Joshua to set up stones in the middle of the camp to be a memorial forever to testify of what God did at the Jordan River. These stones of remembrance were intended to be a way for fathers to tell their sons about the faithfulness of God and have it passed down through generations. Likewise, we have stones of remembrance in our lives that we need to speak of so that we can pass on the message of faith and hope to the next generation. We hope you have been blessed by today's Bible study. For more information about the Gracious Words radio program and the teaching ministry of Cheryl Broderson, please visit our website at graciouswords.com. Coming up next time on the Gracious Words program, we'll finish our look at the stones of remembrance as we continue our Possessing the Promises series in the book of Joshua with Cheryl Broderson. We do hope you make plans to join us. Again, for more information, please visit our website at graciouswords.com. This program is sponsored by Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.